and Ziploc that Right on my waistline is why I kept that strap I remember nights, I didn't remember nights I damn near went crazy, I had to get it right Now I'm your favorite rapper's favorite rapper Hey, Now I'm your favorite trapper's favorite trapper The absolute truth, yeah, no joke Who me, I merged from the crack Hey everybody, Big Randy Welcome to another edition of the Trap Draw. Today's um, episode is an author conversation. It relates to the September book of the month, and it is with Lauren Rubenstein, author of Mo and Me, Encounters with Mo Norman, Golf's Mysterious Genius. Uh, like all these conversations, I think, uh, well, one, I hope you enjoy it, and two, I think whether you've read the book or not, it's you'll find it... Um, <laughs> A, a worthwhile um, use of your time. I, I think Lorne gives some really good perspective. I know for me personally, Mo Norman was a name that I had always heard, and I kind of understood him to be a legend, but um, certainly the book helped put a face with a name, if you will, and I think this conversation with Lorne uh, just kind of adds some color uh, to that book. And so if, if nothing else, I, I think it's a great opportunity to learn a little bit about Mo Norman, one of the one of the real characters and, and legends uh, from the game of golf. Just as as a bit of background on on Lauren Rubenstein, he is uh, a native of Toronto, Canada. He has been covering golf as a writer for over thirty years. Is won numerous accolades for his writing. His most recent award, he was named the 2018 PGA Lifetime Achievement Award winner in journalism. Um, he has authored a number of books. Some of his other works include um, A Season in Dornick, Golf and Life in the Scottish Highlands, Mike Weir, The Road to the Masters, and then he's also collaborated on a number of books, one with uh, Nick Price, David Ledbetter, and you might be familiar with his latest work. Uh, he, he collaborated with Tiger Woods on his memoir, The 1997 Masters. Lawrence uh, was very gracious with his time. Really appreciate him coming on and, and talking about uh, Mo Norman. And without further ado, here's our conversation. My first question, Lauren, and I guess it's not really a question, but I was wondering or I was hoping you could lay out for the listeners when you first encountered Mo Norman and what that was like. Yeah, sure. Uh, I first came across Mo when I was about 13 years old. There was a uh, there was a, a tremendous sort of golf facility within a mile or two of my home in North Toronto, and uh, it had a, a night-lit par three course that had a two-tiered driving range, had a gigantic practice uh, putting green, uh, and it had a, a full-length nine-hole golf course. It was called the Haviland Golf Center, and um, you know, my dad used to take me there, uh, and uh, we'd play the par three course at night, or I'd just go over and hit golf balls. And one evening in the summer, on a very hot summer's evening, I remember, we went in there and uh, noticed this guy kind of whacking golf balls out into the out into the night sky, and he was, you know, really sweating. As I say, it was very hot, and he was dressed unusually, you know, very um, vivid clothes that kind of, you know, that sort of clasped with one another, and his slacks, the bottom of his slacks, they, they were kind of above his uh, tops of his shoes, and uh, he may have even been wearing a turtleneck, I think he was, even though it was so hot, and yet he was he was hitting the golf ball just like 
you know, down a center line. I mean, every drive he hit, it just seemed like it was landing and finishing right near the one before, and he didn't wait at all between shots, just hit one shot after another. So I asked my dad, who's that? And he said, oh, that's uh, Mo Norman. Um, he's an amazing guy. So we watched Mo for a while, and inevitably every night there, people gathered around and watched Mo, and, um, you know, he would start talking about the golf swing and how he thought about it. He would set his the head of his driver back from the golf ball because he always wanted to get, he said, everybody talks about getting long and low in their backswing, so he just sets up uh, the head, you know, behind the golf ball um, quite a bit, and uh, he would just hit balls, and that was Mo, so... I think the best thing that happened was that that evening my dad, who played some pro football in Canada, and he was really into sports, and uh, he told me, and people were laughing at Mo, as they would, because his mannerisms were so unusual, so eccentric, and my dad said, you know, he's an easy guy to laugh at, but it's more important to try to understand him uh, and, you know, just take some time. And that was great advice for a guy, for a kid who was going to go on to become a writer. Um, and uh, over the years, uh, I would watch Mo whenever I could and got to know him. And um, But my first encounter with him was that, that evening at de Havilland. And uh, he fascinated me that night, and he really fascinated me, you know, really right through um, his whole career until he, he died in 2004. Just, just such an interesting guy from both a psychological point of view and from the way he swung the golf club. Was it easy for you to approach and get to know Mo? Yeah. I mean, first of all, Mo was very comfortable with kids. I mean, there were so many instances when you'd see him around kids and just tossing a golf ball to them or giving them a golf ball or kidding around with them. Um, he wasn't as comfortable with adults because he did know that they were laughing at him and kind of mocking him and not making that attempt, as my dad advised me to uh, over the years, to try to understand him, to get into his world if possible. So he was very comfortable with kids, uh, and I was only a kid. I was about 13 years old. And uh, But as I grew up and became older and um, he, could, he, he knew that I was hanging around to Haviland, he could see that and, um, you know, he'd watch me hit golf balls occasionally and, you know, I was a decent enough player to play in junior tournaments and later amateur tournaments and uh, as I got to be 17, 18, 19, I could talk to him about the golf swing and he would give me the time and when I did turn to writing, uh, I guess by then Mo had um, had the feeling that he could trust me and um, he could open up to me and it developed into, you know, a really lifelong, I would, I would go so far as to call it a friendship for sure. And um, I think it was probably because uh, I was just open to him. I kind of, uh, whatever world he was in and how he was living, I wanted to learn more about that world. I mean, I always thought it was very interesting that Mo um, was playing what I call the most private game that's played publicly. And it wasn't easy for him. And his his way of um, living in the world was to show people, well, just to do it for himself, first of all, and uh, and just enjoy the feeling of hitting a pure golf shot. And I enjoyed watching him do that. And uh, he, he, as I got older and, you know, I went into graduate school and did a master's in psychology and was doing a Ph.D., which I, I didn't complete because I was starting to have some success writing, um, he uh, he would always talk with me and, uh, and spend time with me. And I'd introduce him at clinics and played golf with him a number of times. So I think the trust that developed from that first encounter when I was 13 was, you know, instrumental in our developing a friendship 
uh, over the years and in him allowing me to uh, enter his world and write about him uh, as often as I did. For anybody listening who might not have read the book yet, um, can you touch on what you think are the most significant moments in Mo's life which uh, were formative for the person he became and, and, the, and the guy you got to know? Yeah, I mean, he grew up in uh, a town, a city called Kitchener, about an hour west of Toronto. It was, uh, you know, a real, uh, it, it was uh, you know, about 30,000 people living there, uh, a blue-collar town. And, um, you know, Mo's father w- worked uh, at a furniture store in Kitchener. And, you know, his parents, um, you know, they they certainly didn't grow up in a, they weren't part of a country club world, and nor was Mo. And, but he began to caddy at a local course there called the Westmount Golf and Country Club and Kitchener, kind of the fancy private club there. Uh, and he just found out that he could hit the golf ball accurately. But, you know, he was always um, different, that's for sure. I mean, there's no doubt about it. I mean, a lot of people talk about the, the accident that happened when he was about five years old. He was kind of just kind of on a, on a toboggan coming down a little hill in uh, um, a driveway, really. Uh, and uh, he got to the bottom, and a car was coming around the corner, and uh, just hit the um the toboggan you know at a very low rate of speed it was a winter's day but still you know mo was banged up a little bit when he came home uh there was um kind of a some sort of a you know like a mark a bruise to his cheek and his mother always uh, regretted that she didn't take him into the hospital he did appear to be unhurt he was with a friend at the time but uh you know, later on when a policeman was investigating the accident very soon after it happened, Mo hid under a sofa. He was this, just that shy and introverted. And, um, you know, it was never examined, but teachers uh, at his school started to notice that soon after he started to develop his characteristic uh, double speaking or repeating himself. He did that really throughout his whole life. And whether there was any neurological damage or not, it's hard to say, but it's possible, you know. It's possible that that accident had an effect. When I was doing my book, uh, I did speak with um, a fellow who um, is involved in that area, and he was certainly under the impression, just anecdotally, that Mo suffered some, you know, I think it was frontal lobe damage or whatever, and that may have contributed to Mo's, um, you know, kind of extreme introversion and, as I say, to his double speaking. So did that have a big effect on him? I think it probably did, and uh, he uh, eventually found his own way of of, of playing the game. And I think because he was so shy and introverted, the experiences of growing up in a kind of a not in a golf club community, people laughing at him even from the time he was a kid – uh, in a way, though, he found the perfect game for such a shy, introverted person. He could play it alone. Um, he, he did. He was great in team sports too. He was uh, in softball. I think he batted over 600, and he could place the ball very carefully. He knew what he was doing there. But in golf, a game that really you know demands so much accuracy and precision, Mo had that, and so he really did find the most ideal sport for him to play at a just for fun but as at a competitive level as well as he got older and uh, I don't think he could have really played in a team sport because he had to do it as he always said his favorite song was Frank Sinatra's My Way and uh, it um, you know it's it probably stemmed from some of those formative experiences I would say 
the accident, um, the um, being in a fancy country club, but caddying there and not really being a part of the country club, just loving hitting golf balls. He found the perfect sport for him to be on his own. One aspect of Mo, the golfer, I find fascinating um, it was the seeming juxtaposition between his devotion and detailed thinking and analysis on the golf swing compared to his almost nonchalant putting style and, and the approach on, on the greens he had. What do, what do you make of this? Yeah, he, he loved the purity of the strike of hitting the golf ball. That's what he loved more than anything. I mean, you know, seeing the ball come out of the center of the face, whatever club he was hitting, wearing down the grooves on all of his irons, having to replace them frequently. Um, and, uh, you know, you're right. I mean, he was definitely mo- much more in love with the golf swing and studying it and finding a way to be as accurate as he was and consistent as he was. Um, than he was with putting. But having said that, I don't agree with those who felt that um, he he would have accomplished more than he did, and it was a lot that he did accomplish, especially in Canada, across the country, um, had he given the same attention to the putting stroke as he did to the golf swing. I mean, I as I say, I played with Mo quite a bit. I caddied in professional tournaments, um, not for him, but in, when he was in the same group. And I, I have seen him, I have seen him make an awful lot of putts by not taking too much time over them. And people would say, you know, he missed the four-footer because he didn't study it. He just walked up to it and hit it. Yeah, that could be the case. But he also made a lot of four-footers and 20-footers because he didn't study them. He didn't overanalyze it. He just walked up to the ball, kind of took a look and hit it. Um, and he did that frequently. Uh, I think he wasn't crazy about putting because that was the only place on the putting green that he, he sort of had to stand still, you know, on the golf course itself. You know, you hit a shot and you keep moving. You walk to the next shot. You walk to the next shot. Putting, he had to wait really for other players to putt till it was his turn, and that was tough for him just to stand there. He was a guy who needed to be in motion, even though he did walk slowly all of the time. So, um, you know, did he... Would he have done better had he studied putting, had he fallen in love with putting like he did with the golf swing? I don't really buy that. I really don't. Um, there's no way to answer it anyway because, as I say, firsthand I saw him make a lot of putts uh, by not studying them, and I saw him miss a lot of putts perhaps by not studying them as well, you know, on a four-footer where is that inside the hole or outside the hole. So it's a kind of an imponderable but but very interesting question if he would have done better uh, uh, on the greens had he spent more time studying that part of the game. You mentioned uh, Mo had a had a heck of a career, um, it, and that mostly consisted of playing events in and around Canada. I was curious if, if you could talk about um, Mo's experience in the States and, and why he ended up uh, mainly staying and, and playing in Canada as his pro career moved on. Yeah, I mean, he did go down. He played a couple of winter circuits in Florida, and he did play in a couple of Masters back then. The winner of the Canadian Amateur got an exam- or an invitation to the Masters, and Mo went down and played. Uh, you know, and he struggled there because he, you know, it was certainly a situation in which he wasn't that comfortable. He wanted to be on the golf course, and uh, um, you know, the Masters being the Masters, he knew what it was, but uh, you know, he just never felt at ease there, and he always felt players were kind of looking at him on the on the PGA Tour as it was back in the 50s, and they were laughing at him. So he did have trouble with that, but at the same time, um, you know, he played some decent golf down there. 
um, didn't play that many tournaments. I think maybe 10 tournaments uh, for the winter. That was what constituted uh, um, the, sort of the winter circuit down there. And, you know, he played um, played some big tournaments, he played the Masters, other PGA Tour events. I mean, but he wasn't that comfortable there. You know, in my book I write about a player in his group at one tournament there, you know, calling Mo aside and telling him to fix his teeth. Mo, you know, drank about 25, 30 Cokes a day in those <laughs> days. And, you know, his teeth were like snaggle teeth, really. They were like fangs. And, you know, the players, remember, this was the time in the 50s. Um, golf was just becoming popular in the U.S. and, and uh, tournaments. And Arnold Palmer was coming out on the scene in his heyday and Jack Nicholas soon after. And, you know, these guys, you know, were, were the big, big names. And here's Mo Norman coming down who, you know, doesn't kind of look right, and I say that in quotes for professional golf of the day, and players, um, you know, were trying to make a few bucks uh, in their chosen field. Uh, you know, didn't some of them didn't want him there, and they didn't treat him that well. Uh, and, he, you know, they, he was sort of, he was laughed off the tour. At least he felt he was laughed off the tour, and some of the people who um, knew him at the time, close friends of his, felt that he was laughed off the tour. So, uh and he did things like tee it up on top of a Coke bottle, you know, and uh, tour officials weren't too crazy about that. But, you know, maybe he was ahead of his time. Maybe he, got, maybe he knew very, very early that golf at that level is as much entertainment as it is sport. And, uh, you know, he used a four-inch tee during the L.A. Open in 1959. Um, he just did things, as I say, his way, that's for sure. But it wasn't... Um, what a lot of tour officials or the game in those days and its players uh, thought was appropriate for the game from a social point of view. So he lasted a couple winners and came home, and uh, you know that was it for his golf in the U.S. One thing I was curious about, really all throughout your book as I was reading it, um, it, it was this: Do you think Mo would have been better suited in a different era? And just, you know, for instance, present day, if he were coming up in, in the game today, uh, do, do you think that would be better for him? Do you think he would find more acceptance? Um, of, of course, there's social media and, and certainly not as much privacy, probably. But I was just curious if you think he would have been better suited uh, maybe for today's environment. Yeah, no, that's a great question, um, Phil. Um, I, I can't see Mo on social media. But I can see him. I can see him being more comfortable today. You know, where there's a much wider acceptance of different personalities, different people, different ways of approaching the game, different golf swings. I mean, in a sense, I mean, his golf swing is being studied now more than it ever was. Uh, and, and you hear a lot about, um, you know, if you're on social media, you read a lot about his golf swing, and uh, people are always examining it. So I think he would have been an object. Um, not so much of curiosity as he was back in the 50s and 60s as he would of, you know, genuine interest in how he manages to get the club on the ball so um, so accurately and get it through the ball so accurately and sends the ball down the fairway or, you know, near the hole. So that's part of it. As far as his personality, I do think, Phil, that he would have been more accepted today. There's, you know, you we, we accept people in a much, uh, which is great. I mean, it's... Uh, it's uh, people are more open to different personalities out there, and because golf, if anything, is even more of an entertainment now than it was then, um, I think that a lot of people would have turned out to watch Mo and follow him. There would have still been the danger, um, you might say, uh, of him being laughed at. He would have still had to deal with that um, from some people, of course, especially because of social media. But you know, I don't think that 
they would be in the majority. I think there'd be more kind of curiosity and respect for the guy's ability to hit a golf ball. And, um, and for that reason, I think that it would have been easier for him nowadays than it was, what, 60 years ago. That ridicule and, and the people laughing at him, in your opinion, Lauren, do you think that was endemic to golf, or do you think that was more just societal at that time? Uh, I don't know. I mean, I was just a kid then, but I think that the game was more conservative then, for sure. Um, society is more open now. At the same time, it's more judgmental, really, because of all of these avenues uh, of social media. But back in the 50s, as I was saying, you know, Arnold Palmer was just coming up. Remember when Jack Nicklaus came up? I mean, people were laughing at him, calling him Ohio Fats, and they felt that he was taking the mantle away from Palmer, and they didn't want that to happen because Arnie had such charisma. So, you know, there there was a real propensity and a penchant back then for um, kind of laughing at somebody who was a little um, kind of outside the norm, you might say. And the way Mo swung the golf club, it was so extreme, the way he addressed the ball, the way he looked over the ball, how fast he played, never took a practice swing in his life. There was all of that. So I think, you know, differences weren't as well tolerated, but I think it was both societal and in the game then because golf was just coming on TV and there was a certain image that was trying to be um, projected, I think. And um, it wouldn't have been easy for Mo to, to fit into that model. You cannot change. You could not change. Mo Norman. People would often ask me, and you know, many times as I as I became older and a writer, they say, you know, you should um, you should become Mo's manager. You should travel with him and help him out and take care of the demands and his time and that sort of a thing. And 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 he you know be able to handle it down there, or somebody else should, somebody who really knows Mo well. And I would always answer him. I said, it doesn't matter. You can't. You couldn't change Mo. Mo was Mo. I mean, if you tried to change him and make him more conventional. Oh, that would basically be, you know, the end of the way he played golf. He couldn't do that. So, you know, that would, that would, that wasn't likely to happen, really. You know, Mo was Mo, and he was, uh, you know, he he wasn't going to be molded into being some, um, I don't know, ideal representative of how whatever people thought golf should be all about back then. So, my next question, Lauren, you've covered golf now for you know, over three decades. Is there anybody, in your opinion, that is at all analogous to Mo? Honestly, Phil, I can't really think of anybody. I mean, I always say, uh, I may have mentioned before, that he's the most fascinating person I've ever met in golf, and I've met them all. Um, But uh, I've never seen somebody who kind of reached the stature, the level that he did, and who was so outside the mainstream. I'm sure there are people out there, but um, did they succeed at the level he did, winning provincial championships, you know, right across the country, almost winning the Canadian Open, you know, a big event, obviously. Uh, I can't think of anybody. I, I, I really can't. Um, I, I know that there are a lot of fascinating people out there and entertaining, but, um, you know, I can't, I can't really think of anybody who would be analogous to Mo. Um, maybe others could, and they've come across them, but I haven't. Yeah, I just can't help but think golf seems so ripe for someone to come along that, you know, is outside that stereotype that, you know, we have for most pro golfers. I mean, we see golfers out there who are, you know, kind of certainly their own people. Every golfer, you could say, is his or her own person that goes without sure. playing. But, you know, you see somebody like Baba who just, you know, plays the game entirely his own way and speaks of it in his own way. You know, he's pretty interesting and, and, and different. And he certainly reached a level that Mo never reached, really. But 
somebody with Moe's, you might say, liabilities who reached a high level. Um, I mean, Moe himself, you, might, you know, was probably his liabilities such as they were probably prevented him to some degree from really, really reaching the heights. But then he couldn't be somebody else, as we were saying a few minutes ago. Um, you know, I mean, it was, is there a golfer like, I remember the name, Bill Lee in baseball, Spaceman, I think. Spaceman, yeah, yeah. You know, is there somebody like that in golf? There probably is at lower levels because it is a game for individuals, you know. Sure. But, um, you know, maybe eventually that person or persons either didn't succeed or keep going or dropped out of golf, who knows. You know, it's, you know, I often thought it would be fascinating to try and find, you know, I'm sure by asking around a dozen people, around the world who were just so different and yet very, very talented in golf and, and write their stories. Yeah, I'm, I'm actually so glad you mentioned Bubba. He was the one name I kept thinking about the most uh, when I was reading your book. And, you know, I, I think he, from just the way he hits it differently than, than most everybody else on tour to some of the stuff off the course, I, you know, that was the name that I kept coming back to. Um, Switching gears a bit, though, I, I was wondering if you could touch on Moe's induction to the Canadian Golf Hall of Fame and what that meant to him. Yeah, you know, it was a long time coming. Um, Moe should have gotten into the Hall of Fame, Canadian Golf Hall of Fame, long before 1995. But, you know, there are all kinds of possible reasons that he didn't. I mean, uh, the Royal Canadian Golf Association, now called Golf Canada, would say that he wasn't nominated, so you know, he really couldn't be considered. But, um, you know, at the same time, his personality was so um, out of the ordinary. Uh, and, you know, who knows uh, really what was going on there. He had his issues with the Royal Canadian Golf Association. They had their issues with him but um, because he was so different. But it was a big, big honor once he did get admitted. And golf was starting to change. He was admitted in the same year that Jack Nicklaus was admitted in the builder category. Um, I mean, Jack isn't Canadian, but he used to have a builder category, and so Jack was admitted that same year. And Jack had his um, his, his um, induction was at the Glen Abbey Golf Club at a, at a dinner, and Moe's induction was at a small golf club called Foxwood out in the country near Kitchener where he grew up, and there were maybe 40, 50 people there. I was there, I, I remember, and just a real country course, and that's where Moe felt comfortable. He didn't want to have an, an, his induction be a big, splashy party or anything like that, and that suited him perfectly. And he spoke there. He was starting to get more comfortable public speaking, um, uh, even though he would often – the speeches were similar. You know, if you've heard one before, you heard pretty much the same one yeah. the next night. But he was very soft-spoken that night. There was humility, humility about him. There was even a an air, an aura of sadness in the evening there because we all knew it had taken too long. You know, a number of writers, um, you know, me, Bob Weeks, um, and others had really tried to, through articles, to push forward the notion that this is, way too long in getting him inducted into the Canadian Golf Hall of Fame. And it, there's no, there's no um, uh, underestimate or overestimating how important it was to him. He really did uh, find it a meaningful evening, and he was, but he would always say that, you know, he knew that it was late in coming, and that, that hurt him, just the very realization that it was so long in coming and that he was ignored. That definitely hurt him. In your opinion, is it fair to say uh, he had found peace and and was really comfortable with you know not only his accomplishments but where he stood and in, in his place in the game? 
Yeah, I think he was. It's a good point, you know, as he got older and, um, you know, he died when he was 75 years old there in 2004, just before the Canadian Open, actually, in Glen Abbey, and they flew the flag at half-mast that week. Um, but he was comfortable. He was doing more clinics, doing a little bit more speaking, as I say, and uh, he could sense when he was around – um, you know, he saw all the tour players at the Canadian Open every Tuesday, you know, Nick Price, DJ Singh, Paul Azinger, they'd ask him to come out on the golf, uh, on the practice range and, uh, you know, hit balls for them and he would do that in his street shoes with their clubs. He didn't have, certainly didn't have his clubs with him there. But, uh, yeah, he really felt that he was admired in, in the world of golf and, uh, I would, I think that's a good, good term to, to, uh, use that he felt, um, sort of comfortable with himself and at peace with the golf world by then. Um, you know, he's, uh, he was sick. He died from, you know, he had uh, cardiac problems, and uh, he was he, he kind of knew he was on the way out, and we all did too. But uh, it was good that he, at, at that point in his life, that uh, a lot of the sort of earlier animosities and difficulties he'd had had been uh, set far aside and there was a general respect for him in the golf world and certainly in Canada okay um, last question for you and as this is a, a book club related chat I, this is something I ask all all the authors that come on is I, I'm really curious two parts what your favorite golf books are and then if there's anything I'm I'm wondering what you're reading right now and it can be golf or or otherwise yeah well, I have a pretty good library of older books, and um, so I'm always looking. As a matter of fact, I'm writing something this afternoon, and I've just pulled out Jack Nicholas's, which I think is his best um, book in terms of an autobiography, his early one called My Life in Golf, which he wrote with Herbert Warren Wind when he was only 25 years old. So I was looking at that one. Um, you know, I'm always reading, you know, um, other books. I'm reading you know, right now, of course, given the uh, – you might say the the world we're living in, the politics of the day. I read a lot about yeah. writing and writing. Um, the writer side, Hirsch, Seymour Hirsch, came out with uh, his memoir, Reporter, a few months ago, and I just got that. Um, so, you know, that's a fascinating book to me. And um, I'm reading a book about uh, the book that the New York Times film critic wrote recently called um, – she's retired now from that – Michiko Kakutani may get her name wrong, but she's writing and wrote a book called The Death of Truth, which is about the political climate today and about what's happening in journalism, you know, around the politi political climate. So, you know, I've been uh, reading that. And, uh, I'm always reading sort of four or five books, really, and uh, but those are some of them I've been looking at recently. I like reading a lot of science books. I like reading um, fiction as well. I'm reading a book by a Canadian writer named C.S. Richardson called The Emperor of Paris, and... Uh, uh, it's a novel, and the reason I'm reading that is that my wife and I are in a couple of weeks, uh, next week, a week, uh, we're going to Dornoch for a week in Scotland, and then we're going to Paris for a week. So I'm, I'm, I'm reading that. It's a novel set in Paris, and I'm enjoying That's that. Great. Well, I, I want to just quickly mention bef before you go, um, actually, A Season in Dornoch is, gosh, right at the top of my list of, of books to read. Um, I'm, I'm really looking forward to that one. I am curious, what year were you in Scotland? What, what year was that book written? Uh, we spent the summer of 2000 there, and uh, then I wrote it when I came back, and it came out in 2001. 
All right, very good. Lauren, thank you so much for your time. I really enjoyed this conversation and really, really enjoyed reading your book about Mo Norman. So thanks so much for your time and uh, have, have a great week. Thank you. You too. Take care. Bye. 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 Trapper, the absolute truth, yeah, no joke.